Please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, find verses 21 through chapter 4, verse 1, where we'll focus our attention this morning. And I wonder if you've heard of this group, Luke and Layla, Sadie, Sonny, and Lauren. Well, currently they stand to inherit $30 million. Why are they significant? Well, they are two of the richest golden retrievers, cocker spaniel and pair of springer spaniels known to man. How could they inherit $30 million? Well, if Oprah dries, dies tragically before they do, they have a $30 million trust as an inheritance. Isn't that sweet? Patricia O'Neill, the daughter of a British countess and an ex-Olympic meddler, the wife of an ex-Olympic meddler, uh, left $70 million to her chimpanzee named Kalu to ensure his well-being for the rest of his life. Kalu's $70 million makes Michael Jackson seem kind of stingy, only leaving $2 million for his chimpanzee. Apparently, it made Bubbles, the name of his $2 million chimpanzee, made Bubbles bitter, and the chimp was too hostile to his handlers after Jackson's death. And so he had to be sent with his inheritance to the ape sanctuary in Wachula, Florida to live out his days. According to Bubbles' Wikipedia page, he's alive and doing well. Why do I tell you about a group of the richest pets in the history of mankind to illustrate that mankind has, in fact, lost our mind? We've become so centered on ourselves that we live for money with a singular passion, declaring it as the ultimate good and then realizing at our death this thing, this substance, this value, this achievement, this empirical marker of man-made glory we find so amazing, so worthy of pouring our life out for, we find it so wonderful that we leave it to pets. Do you know how much money the Humane Society gets every year from estates? I'm not even going to say it. It makes me sin. It's unbelievable. Money inheritance, the future. Often things like money and inheritance and our future are viewed by Christians through the lens of wisdom. I think that gives us a freedom that often hurts us and doesn't help us. God talks about money. God talks about our future. God talks about our inheritance with authority. I wonder, do we listen Perhaps nothing so helpfully divides the sheep from the goats as these things. How we really view money, inheritance, future. As you labor on earth and work hard for the glory of God, how do you view your wealth? How do you plan for your future? How do you see what you have now in comparison to what you'll have in the future forever? After all, we work to please God, to serve him, our love for him and fear of him and reverence for him. They all produce from us work for him. And through these things, the glory in our grind goes to God. And in his economy, our needs are met by his grace through our labor. For the last several weeks, we've considered our earthly calling. How do we live on this earth? Engaging in the labor God has given us, focused on making much of him. How do we do that? Well, we saw 10 characteristics of an earthly calling from Colossians 3, and 23. How they bring glory to God. It's a humble life. 
of comprehensive obedience that brings out the perspective that this world is not our forever home. And we live with obvious integrity and a reputation of honesty. There's nothing to hide in our life. It doesn't matter if we're in front of our boss or our boss is on a European vacation. We're the same employee. Our effort is authentic and our drive is because we fear the Lord. There's nothing that motivates us more than him. Everything we do is for him, directed at him, all to please him. That's our earthly calling. But Paul doesn't just leave us with this calling that's in truth overwhelming and rightly understood as life dominating and hard and difficult. He doesn't just drop it in our laps and say, well, good luck. Instead, he helps us. He doesn't just give us a manual for labor. He gives us a motivation for that labor. He gives us more than an earthly calling. And as we'll see today, he gives us our heavenly motivation. Work hard for the Lord. Why? Why work hard for the Lord? Because he's good? Because he's worth it? Well, absolutely he's good and absolutely he's worth it. But there's more than that. He's worth our every effort in our every labor. But here's the thing. Not only is he worth it, and he absolutely owes us nothing because he's the one who saved us from our sins, saved us out of our debt into his riches. But he has promised that even more of his goodness awaits us. More of his glory is ready to be lavished upon us. You cannot go quid pro quo with Jesus. His grace will always be too much. His kindness is far more abundant than you can imagine, and you can never earn it because he won't sell it. He gives it. He lavishes us with what we can't earn in this life. And he promises even more in the next. So Paul, in his wisdom, by the Spirit's prompting, helps these people in Colossae, these slaves in Colossae, and the generations of Christians to follow, Christians who felt the emptiness of this world's work and struggled with the futility of our labor here and fought against the emptiness and meaningless of mundane duty. He says, hold on, friend, because something better is coming. Nothing like you can earn on this earth is coming for you when God gives it to you. What you can't earn, God has stored up for you and is waiting on you in heaven. You must understand that not only do we have an earthly calling that brings God glory in the midst of our grind, but we have a heavenly motivation that brings out from us the glory that God deserves of us in the mundane of the moment. He tells us about the glory of the future. God has not said tomorrow will be better. Instead, God has said eternity future will be perfect. So hang on. Hang on today. Hang on tomorrow. Hang on until our Savior comes back because when he does, all you could ever want will be coming with him in abundance. Don't work because you have to. Work because you get to. And work because someday that work will provide an inheritance like you can never have imagined now. So please stand with me. And read of this incredible and profound hope. We'll read all of Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1. Paul begins, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us to focus on your truth, to understand what you've said to us, how you've placed in front of us the beauty of heaven for every day to long for, to live for, to look forward to, to trust in, to believe that's coming from our Savior to us. Help us not to be clouded with earthly pursuits, earthly considerations, earthly struggles. Help our hearts to see clearly through the fog of this earth to the beauty of heaven. We need your help, and so we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we begin this series, combing through God's word from beginning to end, we discovered work is not the problem. We're taught from Genesis to Revelation that work is not the enemy. Work at its best is the gracious expression of man's efforts for the glory of God and the good of each other. To view work as a problem is to misunderstand work. But we can't forget that Paul is talking to people who worked. They worked hard. They worked as if their lives depended on it. They were slaves. Slaves that had no opportunity to choose their career, no ability to change their vocation. Instead, they were left with these jobs and the tasks and the duties that the rest of society said was beneath their dignity. And so whether you love your job or loathe your job, see what Paul is doing. Paul is seeking to elevate the gaze of the Colossians off of the horizontal stuff that they do and lift their hearts from the struggle of the temporal, seemingly meaningless duty and give them the hope of the realization of glory that's coming for them. That's verse 24 in a nutshell. Paul gives us our heavenly confidence, our heavenly motivation by outlining our anchored confidence that every believer should hold. That's what we see first. It's the anchored confidence. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Why, Paul? Like, that's great, but have you met the people I work with? That's all the pastors are saying. You know, why, Paul? Because we have a heavenly motivation that brings an anchored confidence. Why do we work heartily for the Lord and not for men? Verse 24, because we know that from the Lord we'll receive all that this world promises but can never deliver. Focus on this first phrase, knowing that from the Lord. That's where we see our anchored confidence, knowing the confidence that from the Lord, the anchor. Think for a moment, what could a slave trust? What was stable in a slave's life? What brought confidence for the future in the heart of a slave? Not family, they could be sold, not housing. They own nothing, not income. Many places, the limits of a slave's income were legislated, not culture. Slaves were culturally viewed as despicable or property, not the future. There was no planning the future for a slave. There were two things that were sure. One was death, and the other one was what God has said. No future plans held but what God has said. The only stable thing that a slave knew was what they knew about God, the God who never changed and never lied. 
What else did a slave trust? Nothing. They tried to trust God's people, but if God's people then were like God's people now, there were probably reasons they couldn't trust them. They struggled to trust them. But Paul is not addressing slaves in their worldly confinement and their worldly struggle. He's addressing slaves in the church where they're free in Christ, no longer bound to sin and death, but redeemed and purchased into God's family, adopted as God's children. Colossians 3.11, here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. But Paul, he's, he's not oblivious to the earthly uncertainty of the slave. And so he reminds them that their trust and their faith and their confidence comes from, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord we have an anchored confidence. What do we trust? Think about us for a minute. What do we trust? I'd said, I've said this before and I believe it. Almost all conventional American financial Christian wisdom seeks to eliminate a need to trust the Lord. I'm not saying it's not wisdom, but most of it, if not all of it, is seeking to help us not trust the Lord for everything. Honestly, where's your confidence? If you didn't get a paycheck when you're supposed to get a paycheck, you tell me where your confidence is. Maybe your confidence is in your savings account or your home equity. Maybe that's your fallback or the reliability of your car. Maybe your confidence is in family. You have a strong family, a good family, a close family. Dad's always been your friend and occasionally your banker. Maybe your confidence is in the stability of your company. Is it in the financial health of our nation? Is it in your commitment to being debt-free? Where's your confidence? Just to be clear, if you have the opportunity to work for two companies and all things are equal, Don't choose the one that pays less. I mean, yeah, use wisdom. We have to. But wisdom that eliminates from our hearts the reasonable response to trust the Lord first, always and only, be careful with that kind of wisdom. That's not wisdom. Be careful with the innermost recesses of the heart that only you and Jesus discuss of why you do what you do. Don't allow conventional Christian financial wisdom to eliminate your need to trust the Lord. Choose the stable, the stable company. Don't, don't choose the unstable company, but your confidence is in Christ or you've chosen to worship wisdom and not Christ. So where's your confidence? Here's one area where the slaves have an advantage over us, an advantage none of us would ever choose and they wouldn't have chosen it either. Their only advantage was that they had no other option than to put their confidence in Christ. But I'm sure they still had to fight fear and worry and anxiety and beg God to keep their hearts knowing that from the Lord they would receive one day all that they had been promised. So where's your confidence? Is it in earthly, temporal, circumstantial, economic markers? Or the Lord. Paul says, instead of anything else, that our confidence is always just in Jesus. First word of verse 24, knowing. Knowing. What does that mean, knowing? Well, I think a part of knowing is that there's a confident exclusion of error. When you know the truth, you can be confident that error is, in fact, error and not truth. Take, for example, if you tried to tell me that the high school mascot of the Lebo, Kansas schools was a wildcat, 
I would know beyond a shadow of a doubt in anything in my mind that you are wrong. I can still feel the hot gymnasium growing up. I can smell in my nostrils the odor of my classmates when we were playing sport. I, I know what the Lebo High School mascot is. It's a wolf, and anything else you try to say is wrong. I know it. But do you know that from the Lord you will one day have all you need? Do you know it? Or are there things that can pop into your mind or things you can read on the news or tickers at the bottom of the screen that all of a sudden cause you to wonder? Do you know that from the Lord or do you wonder if from the Lord? Because knowing not only means you have the ability to confidently dismiss error, but you actually do confidently dismiss error. Not only do you confidently dismiss error, but you pursue righteousness and truth because of what you know. You're not stuck in limbo when circumstances point to your demise. You're not left wondering, well, I wonder what will happen now. You know that from the Lord, one day your inheritance is secure and your reward is coming. Knowing. It means you have a confidence in this life that's not dictated by paychecks or revenue forecasting or what the Wall Street Journal says about your sector of business. Knowing. It means you have confidence and, and all the time confidence that frees you from the worry of this life because you know what's coming. You know it. You don't wonder about what's coming. You may wonder of its magnitude and its beauty, but you know that it's coming. Knowing means your confidence is in all the time confidence that frees you from the worry of this life. This life is a vapor. There are no tax brackets in heaven. Our inheritance that coming, that's coming produces a confidence that's sure and transcendent in the temporal circumstances of this life, and it's anchored in our Savior to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that from the Lord... It's an all-the-time realized faith that we know what's coming... I don't need to know tomorrow because I know the future. Life changes. But what you know about the future does not. Because who you are in Christ means Christ is coming for you. You may get fired. You may get fired weeks before your wedding and have no place to live. Obviously, that's purely hypothetical, but happened to me. Well, that was a bummer. Knowing, It's being sure of what you hope for and confident of what you do not see. That's the author to the Hebrews. That's how he describes it. Knowing. Let's broaden the phrase a little bit. Knowing what? Verse 24. Knowing that from. I love this. Paul says, knowing that from the Lord. Paul puts the emphasis here on the connection from our knowing and the inheritance. And it goes not through Christ, but it is Christ. It's from him. He's our inheritance. He's our future inheritance. Our Savior gives himself to us. Paul puts clearly this inheritance is from Christ. It's not like an intermediary. It's not, it's not Jesus saying, that'd be good for them. Go ahead, you go give it to them. It's from Christ. He has promised you. Not only future inheritance, but a personal delivery, a personal distribution of our future comes from him. Imagine slaves who had no dignity in their culture, viewed as property. Can you fathom how this would feel to them, that the God of the heavens, the one who saved heavens and earth, the one who, Jesus, he's their inheritance. 
Our confidence is not anchored in a theology. Our confidence is not anchored in a circumstance. Our confidence is not anchored even in a hope for the future. Our confidence is anchored in Christ. We know that our confidence is rooted in the person and the character of Christ. Your heavenly motivation is rooted in an anchored and confidence in the Lord. He is it. He's your anchor. Knowing that from the Lord, the Lord, who is he? What's Paul's whole effort in the book of Colossians been? To tell you who he is. That Jesus is supreme over all. That Christ is over everything. And when Christ is your financial guru, your future is set. When Christ is in control of your company's finances, your future is secure. When Christ is your motivation, your confidence is anchored in the only true immovable object the world has ever known. Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 15 to 70. In him all things hold together, and we know that from the Lord we'll receive an inheritance. What can Jesus not do? you say nothing, you're kind of right, but you're wrong. There's something he can't do. He can't fail. Your 401k is only as good as the investments. Your savings account is only as good as the security of your bank. Your future is only as strong as our nation. If China and Russia decide they're joining forces against us, where's your hope? And our commander-in-chief For the slave and backwater run-down Colossae, Paul says, your future is as secure as Christ. I think for us, we should consider the freedom we have with our circumstantial security and be very cautious with it. Maybe you have wealth. Your temptation will naturally be to be confident in what you have. Maybe you have an ultra-secure job. Maybe you're like the funnel at work. Everything's got to go through you. Everything says you have financial security, you have job security, you're set. You're going to be tempted to put your confidence in work. But friend, I really believe this is true. Confidence anywhere in anything outside of Christ betrays a lack of confidence in Christ. Is it bad to sock money away for retirement? No, do it aggressively so you can retire soon and serve the Lord. That's awesome. That's wisdom. That's being godly. But again, it goes back to the heart. Why do you do what you do? Do you know that from the Lord you'll have everything the future can offer so you don't have to live for the things this world tries to entice you with? You can live for heaven now. Then do it. Or do you feel like you need to labor and strive to achieve all that you can now because in truth your future with Christ you're not sure is that great? That's a problem. Maybe you look at your work, you look at your accounts, you look at your land, you look at your assets, and you know you're good. Recession comes, it'll be a bummer, you'll be fine. Well, you won't be. After all, ask a gambler. There's always a sure thing, there's always a sure bet. Ask a gambler's wife or spouse, it's not true. There's never a sure thing or a sure bet. There's only one sure thing, and his name is Jesus. No matter how secure you are in this world, no matter how confident you feel in this life, Paul says our only anchored confidence is just Jesus. 
preacher to the Hebrews tells us we have refuge in Christ and we can hold fast to Christ because God guaranteed that he is for us. And these truths where we hold fast and set our eyes as we persevere, they are the person of Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, Christ is our sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Only and always in Christ do we find our heavenly motivation has a confident anchor. And only in Christ do we find the sure thing, everything in this world promises but can never deliver. Have you ever heard of that investment banker that's like, hey, you should try me. Occasionally I make people money. No. You're always going to make money with every investment banker. But will you? Nothing sure but the Lord. We will receive what he has promised and we need. But what is it and when? Well, middle of verse 24, we see the answer to both. It's our future treasure. Why do we work hard? And what is our heavenly motivation? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. I wonder how the listeners would have reacted when this letter was read for the first time. I bet it was a marvelous scene. These people who never had anything heard that the God of the heavens was going to give them an inheritance. Earthly, poor believers heard they would be heavenly rich. I bet it changed some of their lives. I bet it was moving, uplifting. But I'm afraid that in the fat and happy state we find ourselves in, never worried about a meal, only concerned about how soon we can upgrade our luxury. I'm afraid that we're so full of all that this life has to offer. It's, fine, it's hard to find ourselves longing for the future inheritance that God promises. So we're pretty good now. Got what we need. More than that, we got so much stuff, we put it in a storage unit. How often do we live for the inheritance that's coming and not the paycheck that we want this week? How often do we view our paycheck as our inheritance, as our reward? I would guess too often. Even how we call it, our paycheck. We work hard. God blesses us. We spend it and give him some back. Money is fundamentally an opportunity to not depend on the Lord. In Paul's day, 95 ish percent of the world worked the ground to raise crops or raise animals for food and depended on the weather for the provision and, and the landscape to be productive or they didn't eat. Famine was a thing. Even the wealthy had to depend on the land. If you had money but there was no food to buy, it didn't matter how much money you had. But now we have money and we have so much food we fill our pantries and we have so much food that we can't fit in our little freezer so we have to buy a deep freeze and put it in the garage. And then we have food like Twinkies that could outlast a nuclear holocaust. We have food upon food and stuff upon stuff. And we look at this inheritance and we think, hmm, that'll be cool, but I'm good. What have we done? We've insulated ourselves from depending on anything but ourselves. Has that helped us? No. It's tuned our hearts to self. I work, I earn money 
for my stuff, for my food, for my good, to preserve my future. Subsistence farming was day to day in Paul's day, season to season for entire regions. Their reward was lunch. They had no future. Our reward is riches upon riches, even for the poor amongst us. But Paul challenges both the slave and the owner, both the rich and the poor. He says, your inheritance is coming. It's not here. But how often do we live like this is our inheritance? We can't work on this earth for this earth and love the king of heaven. Do we have joy here? Do we have life here? Should we have joy and life here? Absolutely. In abundance, we should. But this world is not ultimate. Paul says you work hard, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will, what's that? It means it's in the future. You will receive. You will. Not you have already, but you, you will. And yet what's our normal view on life and money and the reward of our work? It's for me now. Bring it to me now. What's the often root of our dissatisfaction with work? If you're honest, money, the size of your paycheck. What's our employers most often cure to our dissatisfaction culture-wide? A raise. Paul says you will receive. Not you have now, but you will receive the inheritance. You will receive the reward. All those things you spend your life searching for now would be better spent longing for in the future. Too often we waste our life now. Instead of longing for those things in the future, we look for them now where they can't be found. You say, well, that's harsh. I'll say it more gently. If your pursuit in your career is to accumulate wealth and treasure and reward now, you mock the promise of God's abundance for your future. Maybe Jesus will help you more than me. Mark 8, 35 and 36. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I mean, let's be clear. I don't think you should ever turn down a raise. Circumstances are right. As long as it doesn't take you away from Christ. Wisdom and faith are not in opposition. Faith and wisdom seeking to serve self are in opposition. Don't chase the dollar bill with this life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Do you need Jesus to answer? You don't need more now. Your inheritance is coming. Colossians 3.24, you will receive. How many of you all remember snack time? In school, snack time? Oh, I love snack time. I know that'd be a shocker to you. You know, sometime right in the midway point between drop off and lunch around, you know, 10 o'clock, teachers knew mutiny on the bounty happened because they were hungry. So if you feed the little rebels, you know, they, they bring you this like little cardboard carton of milk that smells like it's about six or eight hours away from turning into liquid sour cream. And they give you the smallest cup known to man full of Cheerios or some unsavory treat like that. And but I loved it. I was all for it. I loved snack time. Why? Because it held me over to lunch. It made me not so hungry. And I was always hungry. Strategic placement of snack time is 
an amazing piece of wisdom. Here's the thing with the Christian life and many of our pursuits in this life, especially with money, the result of our hard work, instead of motivation for our work being a future inheritance, the motivation for our work is a simple little snack time. We're trying to go from one snack time to the next in this life of luxury so we don't feel the hunger that this world should produce for heaven. And the longing we should have for heaven, we satisfy on earth. We snack on a vacation so we don't have to long for the future. We snack on a new car so we don't have to wait for the inheritance that is coming. We snack on the financial nest egg so we can cash in a little excitement before we go to heaven. We snack on the leisure of retirement so we can rest here and not be too tired for our eternal rest. Paul is pointing to the hearts and motivations of all of us, but especially to these slaves and saying, look, your motivation is not here. Your motivation is there. The final expression of their glorification on the new earth, under the new heavens, when all has been accomplished and every knee is bowed and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and they meet their Savior face to face, that's when they'll have what they long for. That's a worthy motivation for your every effort on this earth, not snack time. What motivates you? Trip to Florida? I like it. Leather seats instead of cloth? Now, I got five kids. You don't want to clean up cloth seats with five kids. But you see, these earthly pleasures, they betray motivation in our hearts that always fizzle. Where's our motivation? Living for heaven? Earthly motivations produce temporal efforts, but heavenly motivations, they produce eternal glory. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 echoes loudly here. Why do we work? Why do we work hard, old friend? Because heaven is coming. Your pain-in-the-neck boss can't slow down heaven coming. Your company going bankrupt can't keep you out of heaven. Pumping poop for a living doesn't bother you because you know heaven is coming. You will receive the inheritance as your reward. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Don't live for snack time. Those are the workers not concerned about the work because they're motivated by heaven. They don't need the blessings now. God promised for the future. They don't need them now. They're ready to wait. They can wait. They trust that God will provide. They're the people who work hard and work with confidence. And they go to their grave knowing that they will inherit exactly what God promised. They don't live for the green rectangle. They're the people who can truly say, in God we trust. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 is the kind of people that Paul's describing. Hebrews eleven thirteen: these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. I wonder, friend, what is your motivation for work? Is it Jesus has saved you and you long to please him? Or is it, I want to get this thing that I want. I'm going to work hard so I can get stuff now, stuff that's going to burn and rust and decay. See, if this world is home, we work for this world. But if our minds are in heaven... 
Colossians 3, 1 and 2, then we work for a heavenly reward. If our citizenship, Philippians 3, 20, is in heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our longing, to be with him. When our hearts are connected to our homeland in heaven, and Christ is all we want, longing for his return is more natural than longing for more stuff. Then we won't be satisfied with stuff. If we're satisfied with stuff, there's a deep problem in our soul. The more we want Christ, the more we long for heaven. The more we long for heaven, the more or the less we want stuff. Paul says to motivate us to long for our future treasure that you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. He says, look, this is what's coming. Bank on it. But what is this inheritance as your reward that will be ours? Paul says, literally, we will receive the reward of the inheritance. This isn't two things, it's one thing. We've been adopted and made joint heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. What do heirs receive? An inheritance. What is this inheritance? Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 says it's coming. We've been qualified to receive it, but what is it? Paul uses the same word, Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, to describe our salvation coming by faith. Then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says this same word as a way to describe salvation itself. The Holy Spirit guards us, keeps us, seals us, protects us, and is the guarantee of our what? Our inheritance, which is the acquired possession of the fullness of our salvation. Could Paul also be describing the abundance of life with Christ in heaven in addition to the salvation? Absolutely. He's not only setting in contrast heavenly and earthly masters, as we'll see at the end of the verse, but he's setting in contrast the void of an earthly inheritance and the abundance of a heavenly inheritance. It was illegal for slaves to have an inheritance in most of the Roman Empire. And yet Paul says it's guaranteed by God in heaven for you. I don't think slaves failed to catch the glory that Paul was promising. But do we? I think too often the golden handcuffs of American ease and affluence keep our heart focused on earth. Turn to 1 Peter. Peter wrote to people who knew this earth wasn't home, calls them elect exiles. They were persecuted, suffering, struggling people. Peter says, look, this earth isn't home. This earth is just where you are. This earth isn't where you find wealth. Instead, look up, 1 Peter chapter 3, Chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. I wonder if we are so satisfied with the white bread of earth that we don't have an appetite for heaven, the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven. What do we have here that can be described like that? Nothing. Then why are we satisfied with this earth? Do we live for the future inheritance God promises or do we live for what we can achieve on earth, those things that satisfy us now, those things that motivate us now? If I'm honest, this is a battle. I want to go to heaven. I long for heaven. I am done with earth. But man, you give me some cool stuff, I'll consider it. I like stuff. And having stuff isn't bad, but stuff having you is evil. Be careful with stuff. Jesus talks about this. What motivates, what dominates, what drives our work and commands our efforts? What is it? 
He says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friend, you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Live to put treasure on your heavenly account. And what will you do? What will you find? Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus warns us not to store up treasure on earth, it's not a question of financial wisdom. It should be obvious. Dead people don't take stuff to heaven. You've heard the joke, there's no hitch on the back of a hearse for a U-Haul. Nobody takes their wealth with them. All earthly wealth evaporates the moment you see your Savior face to face. So this isn't Jesus imitating Larry Burkett giving financial wisdom. This is Jesus offering a cure to our heart problem. If your passion is earthly riches, give your earthly riches to heavenly causes and see what happens. Throw your money at heaven and see what God does for your heart. What will he do? He will cause your heart to follow your riches. And what will you long for? More of heaven. Jesus offers an absolute blessing of freedom in the here and now, and it's setting your affections on a future treasure. Christians throughout the ages have understood this. They have felt this freedom. They have found its security and lived by its motivation. J.C. Ryle was one. You've seen this quote before. It's one of my favorites. J.C. Ryle in his book on holiness says, A holy man will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of the life that now is, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and a pilgrim traveling to his home. This world is not your home, friend. Your wealth is not here. I don't care how wealthy you think you are. Your future is not here. You have an expiration date. Have you ever stayed in a cheap motel? I don't mean like Motel 6 cheap. I mean like bulletproof glass in the front window kind of cheap. One time when I was in college, a group and I, we were going to drive from Pittsburgh, Kansas, to Fort Wayne, Indiana, through the night on a Friday night. We got to East St. Louis, and all of us retired. So I had this one friend. He was the only one with data on his cell phone. So he got a hotel for us. But he was a cheap friend. <laughs> he was so cheap, he wouldn't even charge his laptop at home. He would take it to school. That's how cheap he was. He picked the hotel. Let me say, it was a cheap hotel. I'll never forget the floor. It was supposed to be brown carpet. I don't know what exactly it started at, but it, it was yuck. The ceiling, popcorn ceiling, there were things growing on it. I mean, it was a cheap hotel. Friend, this earth is the cheap hotel. Why are you satisfied here? You have an inheritance coming. That's beyond anything you can fathom, and you're going to think, wow, the bathroom has nice Formica countertops. It used to be Formica. 
Come on. When you work, what's it for? A promotion? A raise? A status? Set your sights so low. You have a future inheritance, a future award that will be given to you by Christ, very Christ. He's going to give you. We should work for that. I wonder for these slaves in Colossae what their daydreams were like after Paul sent this letter. Stuck in the ugliness of undignified work, Paul says they should be knowing that from the Lord they will receive the inheritance as their reward. They are serving the Lord Christ. Our heavenly motivation is our anchored confidence, our future treasure. And finally, we'll see next time our eternal ambition. We are serving the Lord Christ. Don't go to work tomorrow and work for your boss. Go work for Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us. This earth holds us. Help us to be set free, to long just for our Savior, to long for him and more of him, knowing that one day, knowing that one day we will receive from him all that you have promised, our inheritance as our reward. Help us, we ask, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.